Romeo and Juliet is perhaps the most famous love story of all time. And in Act 2, Scene 2, there's a famous scene in which the two star-crossed lovers are about to depart one another for the evening. And Juliet famously says, Good night, good night. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. I remember those days when Hannah and I were first dating and I would drop her off at her apartment in the evening here in Dallas. Parting was such sweet sorrow. Saying goodnight was sorrowful only to be remedied by the sweet thought that we would see one another again the next day. Now currently, bedtime is only sorrowful as we struggle to get our four kids to actually go to bed, but that is another sermon. But love... Love is an incredibly powerful force. It's something movies are made of. Because deep down we all want to be loved. And as Romeo and Juliet so beautifully illustrates, we all want to be around the people we love. We don't want them to leave. But in our passage today, Jesus again tells his disciples that it is time for him to leave. It is time for him to depart. And it's a sad time because Jesus' disciples love him and they don't want him to leave. And so we see this tension in the biblical passage today. I want you to open your Bibles up to John chapter 13 as we continue our series looking at the upper room discourse, answering the question, and looking at this issue of following Jesus in a fallen world. And Jesus has departed. He's left. He's now at his place of glory with God the Father in heaven, and he's left us with a job to do. He's left us with certain marching orders, and this series we're looking, uh, taking a close look at those marching orders. In our passage today, John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38, we're going to see three things. Number one, we're going to see Jesus once again announcing his departure. Then number two, he's going to issue a command, the marching orders for his disciples, what they're supposed to be doing while he's away. And then number three on your outline, we're going to address Peter's confusion. Because parting is such sweet sorrow, and poor Peter is going to be just a little bit confused. So grab your Bible, follow along with me as we look at number one on your outline first, Jesus announcing his departure. I'm going to read for you to begin with John chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. John says, therefore, when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Let's pause right here. We need to remember what happened last week. As we looked at John chapter 13, the beginning of the upper room discourse last week, remember um, Judas, the betrayer, the one who lifts his heel against Jesus, has now left. He's on his mission now to betray Jesus, to sell Jesus out to the authorities, and the betrayal is now at hand. So coming right off the heels of that, Jesus now continues to explain to his disciples 
what's about to take place. And he tells his disciples, let me read it for you again. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Uh, now, Jesus, obviously the Son of Man, he's identifying the fact that, once again, it's time for his departure. He connects the idea of his departure and Judas's betrayal with this idea of glorification. Over and over again in these verses, you see this idea of God being glorified and the Son of Man being glorified. The idea of God's glory, by the way. One theologian says God's glory is the revelation of his splendid activity. The revelation of his splendid activity. And the splendid activity that we are going to talk about here in this section is ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, this is kind of ironic, right? That the glorification of the Son, God's honoring of the Son, His exaltation is going to come by means of a humiliating and excruciating death on a Roman cross. That it's by means of His death on a cross dying a sinner's death in our place is the means by which Jesus will be honored, will be glorified, will be exalted. But Jesus is using these words to once again remind his disciples that it's time for his departure. Notice what he says in verse 33 as he continues his words to his disciples. He says there in verse 33, little children... I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. But as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A couple things I want you to notice here. First of all, notice Jesus addresses his disciples as little children. Now this is actually a term of endearment. This is an expression of his love for them. He's reminding them that he loves them as a father loves his children. Jesus says, little children, notice this, you will seek me. But as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So after Jesus reminds his disciples of his love for them, he then turns to them and says, listen, where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I want to invite you to put yourself in the place of the disciples for just a minute. These disciples have walked with Jesus for about three years. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They suffered with him. They've journeyed alongside of him. They've been with him every step of the way. And yet now Jesus says... To these disciples whom he loves, where I'm going, you can't follow. You can't come with me. To summarize again, in these verses, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling them he's leaving, he's preparing them for his departure. It's time for him to go. And yet, as a good leader would do, 
The next thing we see as we look at number two on your outline is Jesus gives his disciples very specific instructions for what they're supposed to be doing while he is away. Jesus lays out, once again, his marching orders for his disciples while he is gone. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but Jesus gives his disciples something to do till it be morrow. Let's take a look at number two on your outline, Jesus issuing his command. John chapter 13, let's read first verses 34 and 35. Jesus said to his disciples, these disciples whom he loves, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So having prepared and announced his departure yet again, Jesus now issues his command, what he wants his disciples to do while he is away. And notice this command is pretty straightforward, right? Jesus says to them, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just like I have loved you. I want you to love one another. And by this, all men, the world will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers by your love for one another. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, pretty easy marching order in theory. But I think it's challenging for us because our culture, our world has a very different definition of love. What is love? How would you define love? How would you say our culture, our world defines love? See, we, even in the church, even in the Christian world, we throw that word love around pretty casually, don't we? We say, I love pizza, I love the Oklahoma State Cowboys, even when they get annihilated like they did yesterday. <laughs> we throw the word love around so casually that I think it's lost its meaning. Jesus says, what's shocking here in Jesus' description of love is the extent of that love. Jesus says, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you, or to the same extent that I have loved you. This is an altogether new kind of love. That's why Jesus says it's a new commandment. The commandment to love is not new. We see the command to love throughout even the Old Testament. But what's new about Jesus' commandment to love is the extent of that love. Jesus commands his disciples to love one another with that same Jesus-type love that he's about to put on display in his death on the cross. This is a altogether different kind of love. The kind of love that Jesus describes here, this agape love that I'm sure you've heard about, this is a love that involves commitment. It's a love that involves loyalty, that involves allegiance to. It's a loyal love, an undying love. It's a love that knows no limits, that knows no boundaries, and knows no restrictions. This is the kind of love that our world simply does not know. I want to share with you three kind of descriptions of the type of love 
that Jesus is calling his disciples, that Jesus is calling you and me to model in our life today. Number one, Jesus' love is indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate. When you survey the Gospels and you look at the type of love with which Jesus loves us and loves people, you see that Jesus loved all kinds of people. A quick survey of the Gospels will show you that Jesus loves Roman collaborators, traitors. He loves prostitutes, thieves, religious zealots, rich rulers, working class people, unredeemed lawyers, doctors, and desperately down and out people. He loves people from all backgrounds. His love is indiscriminate. Number two, if you survey the kind of love Jesus shows in the Gospels, you see that Jesus' love is unconditional. It's unconditional. It expects nothing in return. It's not the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of love. But it's an unconditional love. It loves people regardless of their ability to return it. There's truly no strings attached. The third word I would use to describe the love of Jesus you see in the Gospels is that it's unlimited. It's unlimited. It never runs out. It never fails. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Even when we're unlovable, he's still loving to us. The type of love Jesus calls his disciples to, he calls you and me to, is indiscriminate, unconditional, and unlimited. This is an altogether different kind of love. I appreciate what D.A. Carson says in his commentary on John. He says, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, but profound enough that the most mature believer are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Amen? It's simple enough for a toddler to memorize. We're to love one another as Jesus loved us. But even for mature believers, it's embarrassing just how often we fall short of this standard of love. Another thing I want you to notice in the words of Jesus here is that the love Jesus describes here is between believers, but its impact is seen in the world. Notice again, verse 35, Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people or the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, Jesus' command to love, if we actually do it, puts the love of Jesus on display for the world to see. We're not only recipients of God's love, but we're also the models of God's love to a watching, fallen world. So to summarize what we've seen so far, Jesus has announced his departure. He's told his disciples yet again that he's going to return to the Father, that it's time of his departure. And then he commands his disciples here to love one another in his absence. And he says the world will take notice of that love. But Jesus gives this love, this command to love, as he's laying before his disciples yet again this idea of his departure. It's time for him to go. 
Most days when I leave home for work, my son Judah will do whatever he can to stop me from leaving. He will physically block the door. He will come and wrap his arms and legs around my leg. He will beg me to stay home. Daddy, he says, I don't want you to leave. Parting is such sweet sorrow, he does not say, for he has not read Shakespeare. But no matter what I say to Judah, he simply doesn't hear it. I tell him, listen, Judah, daddy has to go to work. I tell him, Judah, dad will be home later. I promise I'll come back. I say, Judah, you're the man of the house while I'm gone. But it doesn't matter. All Judah wants is for me to stay at home because he wants to be with me. And as we take a look at number three on your outline, Peter is a bit like Judah. Jesus has just announced that it's time for his departure. Then Jesus tells his disciples, listen, this is what I want you to do while I am away. But Jesus' words, to a certain extent, fall upon deaf ears, and Peter cannot bear the thought of Jesus leaving. Peter is confused. And so number three on your outline, Jesus addresses Peter's confusion. Let me read for you starting in verse 36 of John chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Lord, where are you going? Again, we have to give Peter a little bit of slack here, right? Peter loves Jesus. He just wants to be with Jesus. He's walked with Jesus for three years and Jesus has said, Peter, it's time for me to go. And so Peter asked the question, well, Lord, where are you going? Let's cut Peter a little bit of slack, but at the same time, I want you to notice that Peter skips right over the command, right? (laughs) So Jesus says, Peter, listen, I've got to go. You can't come with me. And while I'm away, I want you to love one another. And then Peter says, well, forget the command. Where are you going, Jesus? Um, Where are you going? And, And why can't I come with you? And if I'm honest, and I think if you're honest, there's a lesson for us in that as well. Uh, that sometimes we like to skip over the command because this is really hard. To love one another like Jesus has loved us? Let's just kind of skip over the command, we like to think, and let's go to the question of, of, of where is Jesus ultimately going? But I want you to notice the loving response of Jesus. Even though Peter skips over the command, Jesus answers, picking back up there in verse 36, Jesus answered, he said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Then verse 37, Peter wants to know more. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Again, I want to draw you into the emotion in this text. Peter loves Jesus. Peter can't imagine a scenario in which he would not be by Jesus' side. He's walked with Jesus for three years. He says, why can't I follow you right now? He even says to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Now you have to appreciate Peter's confidence, but as we'll see here in just a moment, it is a misplaced confidence. Because notice what Jesus says right back to Peter in verse 38. Jesus answered Peter, 
He said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for Peter to hear those words? He loves Jesus deeply. He can't imagine a scenario in which he wouldn't be by his side. He just said, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. And yet Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And I love Jesus' question there. Will you really lay down your life for me? Because who, after all, is laying down his life for whom, right? Jesus is just hours away from laying down his life for Peter. This is a bit of a challenging kind of back and forth interchange between Peter and Jesus. Jesus knew that Peter was going to betray him. And yet, one of the things I want you to see in this back and forth between Jesus and Peter is is that Jesus never stops loving Peter. Even in predicting Peter's betrayal, denial, Jesus never stops loving Peter. And there's a good reminder in there that Jesus never stops loving you or me either. Throughout the scripture, one of the things we see, one of the beauties of the gospel is that, like I said earlier, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. When we're not lovable, he has loved us anyway. He loved us before the foundation of the world. There's nothing you can do that will uh, un-give this gift of God's love for you. There's nothing you will do that will cause God to take back his love for you. He loves you with an undying, unconditional love. And there's comfort in that. Because if we really search our heart, we'll see how time and time again, we, like Peter, deny him. We don't live for him. We don't measure up. But the beauty of the gospel is that God loves us anyway. That because of Jesus, we can rest in the relationship we have with a loving God. And listen, if you're here this morning in person or online, I want to give you that opportunity, that invitation. If you don't know this type of love, this undying, unconditional, indiscriminate love, I'd encourage you to put your faith, your trust in the one who laid down his life for you. Back to Peter. As history plays out, the Apostle Peter will indeed die because of his faith in Jesus. Jesus, by the way, hints at this there in verse 20, or 36. Jesus answers Peter and says, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Church history tells us that the Apostle Peter would be killed in AD 64 under the wrath of the Roman Emperor Nero that he would be crucified on a cross. But at his request, he was crucified upside down because he did not think he was worthy to die in the exact same manner as his Lord. The words of Jesus, in other words, do indeed come true. Peter will follow Jesus unto death. It's God's will for Peter to die a martyr's death. But here's the thing, it's not God's will for every one of us to die a martyr's death. It is, however, God's will for all of us to die to ourselves. 
It is God's will for all of us, all of us who are followers of Jesus to die ultimately to ourselves, to live out in our life this sacrificial love of Jesus that he commands us to here. That's the point of this passage, a Jesus-like sacrificial love. Like I said last week, our focus for the next really year and a half is to look into this idea of what it means to follow Jesus in a fallen world. And last week we saw that one of our marching orders is to follow Jesus in humility. This week we see our marching order is to follow Jesus in love. In love. But we need to talk about this. Because, once again, our world, our culture in which we live has a very different definition of love. And one of the confusing things I see in our culture is that our culture makes us think that truth and love are opposing ideas. That there's this dangerous dichotomy, in other words, I see in our culture uh, pitting against one another truth and love. And I think we see it on display all the time. And if we're not careful, this dangerous dichotomy can creep into the church where we might be tempted wrongly to think that we can't speak the truth because it's not loving. On the other hand, we might be so focused on truth that we forget we need to present it in a loving way. We present it instead in an unfiltered way that turns away people rather than draws them into the love of Jesus. And yet over and over again in Scripture, I see this beautiful interplay Jesus has in talking with people, putting on display both truth and love. If you're Looking for some additional homework, not that homework means anything here. It's not worth any points or anything like that. But uh, I'd invite you to to pick an interchange Jesus has. Take John chapter 4, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And take note of how he balances both truth and love in his conversation with her. He calls her out on a few things, but he does it in a very gentle and loving way. And he, the master communicator, of course, I think we can learn a lot from in trying to balance these ideas of truth and love. Even here in this context, in John chapter 13, Jesus loves his disciples. That's evident here. And yet he doesn't hesitate from dropping some hard truth on the apostle Peter and saying, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. One person I read this week said Christians are supposed to be people of truth known for love. People of truth known for love. And as Christians, our faithfulness to the truth should be evidenced in our love. And our love with God's help should be expressed in truth. Truth and love. Probably the the book that's influenced my thinking on this more than any other uh, book, is uh, this one right here entitled The Mark of a Christian by Francis Schaeffer. If you have not read this book, I would encourage you to pick up a copy. You can get it for $8.49 on Amazon. It's a great buy. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, by the way, um, he was right. He wrote this in 1970. And if you read anything by Francis Schaeffer, What's striking to me about his writings 
is although he was writing this decades ago, if you were to read his writings, it's as though he's describing the world we live in today. Uh, Theologically, I don't think there are capital P prophets anymore, but Francis Schaeffer comes pretty close. (laughs) He's prophet-like, and I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, okay? Um, But this guy had a remarkable ability to kind of look through the corridors of time and predict what was going to take place in our fallen world and culture. Uh, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of this book, The Mark of a Christian. Let me uh, uh, read, with you, uh, read for you a quote from this book. He says, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks on the lapels of their coats. They've hung chains around their necks. They've even had special haircuts. If you were writing this today, he might say you might even put a little fish on the back of your Uh, bumper, right? But he says, of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling, but there is a much better sign. And he asks, what is the mark? He says, the mark of a Christian is love. The mark of a Christian is love. And long before Francis Schaeffer, a man by the name of Tertullian, writing about 1800 years ago, said that The practice of such love brands us in the eyes of some. In other words, this Jesus kind of love that we read about here in John chapter 13, this Jesus kind of love that Jesus calls his disciples to, that he calls you to and me to, this Jesus kind of love is the brand that we wear, it's the mark of a Christian. And listen, right now, our world is filled with so much hate, is it not? If you open up the news, you'll see just story after story, evidence after evidence that our world is filled with an incredible amount of hate. And so right now, I think you and I have an opportunity in front of us. That's an incredible opportunity to love people in a way that the world has never seen. To love people with the love of Jesus, to to love people, to show this hostile, hate-filled world what true love is. And I can only imagine the opportunities that open up when we do that. Listen, one of the unique opportunities I have as the senior pastor of Grace is to hear the stories week in and week out that most people don't get to hear. And as I look out, even in this room, I know of many stories right now of people who are loving people with an otherworldly, Jesus-like kind of love. I know stories of people who are serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, who are coming alongside one another, encouraging one another with this Jesus-like sacrificial love. And I want to encourage you, Grace, to continue loving one another, to keep showing the mark of a Christian to a lost and dying world. Tomorrow is Halloween, October 31st, which, by the way, means Tuesday is November 1st, one of my favorite holidays. National parents get to eat your kids' Halloween candy day. (laughs) But tomorrow, tomorrow is Halloween. And in neighborhoods all around you, 
There's gonna be little kids walking around asking for candy. But the biggest evidence that tomorrow is Halloween will be the little costumes that all the kids and some adults, I guess, will be wearing. Wearing costumes is the evidence that it's Halloween. You'll know it's Halloween by the costumes. And likewise, God has given to us a specific mark, a brand, a costume for us to wear before a watching world. It's love. Francis Schaeffer said that love is the final apologetic. It's the defense for which there is no defense. It's the unanswerable apologetic. Why is it that we love people this way? It simply can't be denied. And as followers of Jesus, we need to be make, uh, focused on making sure that we wear the mark of a Christian. So there on the back side of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. And your one thing for this week is this. I'd encourage you to read 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. John is really elaborating on this same idea we see here in the Gospel of John. But then I want you to ask yourself, how might God be calling you to love someone in deed and in truth this week? And I'm confident that if you ask God to answer that prayer, he'll put someone in your life this week to love as Jesus has loved us. Here in John 13, we see that Jesus loves his disciples, that his disciples love him. Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure. Parting is such sweet sorrow. And in preparing his disciples for his absence, he commands his followers to love one another with his love. The mark of a Christian is love. So Grace Bible Church, let's wear it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Uh, for this incredible opportunity to be salt and light in a dying world, to put on display what true love is, to love one another as you have loved us. Father, we confess that we are incapable of doing this on our own. But by the power of your Spirit, help us to live out the love of Jesus. Help us to love one another. Help us to love all people, even when it's challenging to do so. And God, I pray that for your glory, you would give us opportunities even this week to love one another, to love people in deed and in truth. And Father, I ask this for myself. I ask this for each one here, for those watching online, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.